Hello and uh, welcome uh, to another exciting and packed episode of Pod of the Gaps, the podcast that seeks to plug the gaps between the church and Christianity and uh, and the big cultural issues of the day. I'm uh, Andy Bannister and I'm joined as ever by my fellow, I think podcastee is the word we settled on. That's right, well, I won you over Aaron then. Aaron Edwards, Aaron Hayden today. Good, thank you. I noticed you always introduce the episodes by saying they're exciting and packed, as though it'd be interesting if you said, this is a really boring and just insubstantial. There's just not there's not much to this episode. It's not packed. It's just got it's very light. Well, it is a faith-based statement as well, isn't it? Because we are recording this, as they say, live to tape, as they say in the industry. So <laughs> I'm hoping it's going to be packed, but we don't know. By the way, I did notice, by the way, when we were setting this episode up, this is our 35th episode of Ooh. All of the Gaps. I don't know if that number is significant, but this is episode 35. I think you know. You know, do we do we get given some kind of object from the podcast community by doing thirty five? Is it like when you're married so many years, you get what is the thirty fifth wedding anniversary? What do you get? What yeah, is it? I, I like to think if I asked my wife, she would know that because she she often <laughs> will remind me because we have twenty fifth coming up, and and I'm there are hints right. being dropped that as to what that should be. So um, so I don't know what something very might. expensive is what it is. Yeah. So basically, well, if anyone any of our listeners want to send us whatever the thirty fifth thing is send it through to well i don't know we don't really have a part of the gaps office just send it to um one of us online or send us a tweet or something you know send us a tweet yeah nice. you can't send a diamond ring via tweet though can you no you you can't of course now twitter since we last recorded has been bought by Elon Musk. Musk. so i don't know what that what what, the, what that means i like to think when he bought it, it, twitter that you know when i read it was like the 44 billion i naively <laughs> assumed that meant that every twitter user was going to get a cash handout but <laughs> that would be great um, yeah. not the case. Um, well, they're talking of handouts, I just had my first proper Twitter spat. Oh, yeah. Yeah, month. it's nice to see you getting involved in the game. You're yeah, you see, normally I'm maybe, I, maybe I'm just like so sort of laid back or just I like to think just so friendly and gracious. Um, no, you're just a good PR person. That's what PR it is. PR person. But uh, yeah, um, a, um, a slightly sort of weird uh, uh, sort of Christian leader whose name I won't mention because I don't believe in the auction of publicity, who has, uh, has gone more and more off the reservation uh, in uh, in recent uh, in recent months, put out some... Uh, ludicrous tweet to the effect of that, that you know the the gospel isn't you know really about sort of you know atonement and uh, having our sins forgiven all this kind of thing it's it's about being invited into you know this great exciting adventure to kind of heal the earth and make society better in other words you know it's about yeah. social action and not about anything deeper and I sort of dared suggest that whilst the gospel might have some social consequences if you follow Jesus there are certainly going to be some impact there um yeah maybe he's missing something and uh and I got leapt upon and you know, called all kinds of horrible names under the sun. And uh, and then in the end, I just stood back and let others come and defend me. But it, it sounds was the like first it was time is, Aaron, it was, I've ever had a proper Twitter spat. For I'm proud of you now. I thought you should, you, you know, if we're going to get our 35th episode, you know, prize, you need to get one for your first, your debut of getting in yeah, trouble. Yeah, you get like a, you should get a t-shirt. I survived Twitter. That's right. You know, you just get some emotional stress to deal with. And, you know, yeah. well, we were saying, um, as you and I were chatting before record, I, so that was my, you know, adventure with, uh, you know, sort of theological progressivism in yeah. the last uh, week or so. But but you you uh, were telling me that you uh, went to a conference which was sort of full of some very weird and wonderful and oh, yes. views. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I mean, let me think. Do I want to denounce everyone? Oh, yeah, I'm sure I have. I don't mind. Names will not be mentioned. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I went to the um, SST, which is a, a, an academic theological conference, the kind of largest theology conference for academics in the UK. About 12 people there. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. There's a load of us, you know, um, around a table. Um, and it, yeah, there's always a mix of weird and wonderful there. There's always some good conversations you can have, but it gets 
progressively more progressive and i would argue that's regressive um by each year i've been going for about 10 over 10 years now um and it's just always interesting and, and just to be there to ask some awkward questions at, at certain times you know it's good some good engagement of course we've got friends who go there as well catch up with each year but one final thing i always find interesting is the plenary papers like the big thing you know there's about four or five of these that everyone's there listening to not the short paper sessions you go to the big one this is what we're, we're gonna you know we're really reflecting on in a big way at this conference and the, and the theme of the conference was um the end of the world um meaning both eschatology like kind of the end literally the end of the world but also the telos the sort of the purpose the goal of the world of the world for and climate change issues that kind of thing and so this person did a plenary paper on disaster movies which is quite interesting um what do disaster movies tell us um about the end of the world because they're always reflecting on the end and there's some impending disaster and how how do humans react to that what does ho- what do hollywood movies tell us about that so i started reading this paper and so like, oh, this is kind of an interesting intro there's some pictures even you don't usually get that in a theology paper at a conference um pictures of the movie scenes and things like that i'm reading through and I'm like gosh this is still going on this is just cultural analysis of movies it's almost like a part of the gaps episode and it gets to, I looked at the, I skipped forward to the last page. There's 28 pages in this paper. And I get through it. And by page 27, there still hasn't been a word of like theology. Um, it gets to page 28 at last. They make a theological comment after all of this intensive analysis of uh, disaster movies and all the different dynamics. And the only point it makes is really um, to have a go at the book of Revelation and say, it's all terrible. The book of Revelation has all this inside outsider language, exclusivist. There's people who are in and who are out. You know, we don't like this. There's people who are kind of sexually immoral, uh, don't get to come into heaven. And we find this very, very offensive, uh, that kind of thing. And it's a little bit like, this is the key point of the whole paper, it seemed. Just like those disaster movies I've spent the last 27 pages trawling through. It's just like the end of one of those movies where the elite make it onto the boat to get into salvation and the ones who are kind of poor and the minorities don't get to make it on they don't get saved from the comet or the godzilla or whatever it is that's going on um and so it's just a, a bizarre inappropriate theological comment to make i was just amazed by how superficial this was so i had an interesting discussion with this person in the plenary session asking my awkward question um and then later on someone else asked a question and then the same speaker she said um you know, she's making reference to another film and said, you know, it's a bit like um, at the end of uh, well, this other film she's referencing where they all get on a spaceship and they go to this planet and then they repopulate the Earth in the normal heteronormative way, kind of pejoratively saying, you know, oh, classic film, assuming that you need heteronormativity, you know, men and women to repopulate the Earth. And, and everyone, a few people did notice this, which I was kind of glad they did later. They didn't say it publicly, but kind of how else would you repopulate you know, humanity without the technology when you're on a new planet without heteronormativity. It's kind of an interesting, like, outing the fact that this is a little bit yeah. of a problem in the worldview, especially when you're dealing with, like, drastic situations where you don't have all this technological prowess to enable families to adopt that kind of thing. Anyway, so that was uh, my, my fun for her to. I think she could have taken that point further, actually, in terms of the audience and said, OK, I want you to raise your hands here uh, if uh, you were the product of a, of a coupling between a man and a woman. Okay, hundred percent of hand scarf. This is terrible. This is this is just heteronormativity. Together, there is no one here who was born other than he. Anyway, it's, it's an apartheid, which actually reminds me of another one. There was another that you know, race came up as a big theme. There's always uh, 
a discussion about race and you know that's an important discussion to have but sometimes it can go down a very well in, in recent years it's just gone down a very explicitly critical race theory lens um and so all the white people are kind of assumed to be racist even if they don't think they are or especially if they don't think they are they're even more racist um and so i've been reflecting on that and wrote a little article on that um on the conference which has uh spiked a little bit of interest um and uh, discussion within those who who disagree, um, as I expect it would. But again, um, you know, the idea of uh, white people not being aware of their um, biases was called was referred to as demonic and an apartheid um, across theology and in the, in the, across the, the the country of the UK. Um, that there's all these white people who are keeping black people out deliberately, almost or even unconsciously, because they're just racist without knowing it, and so they just prefer to be in the company of white people and they prefer to keep black people on the outside. And just amazing. You know, when you try to ask a few questions or unravel a few threads, the amount of, of, of difficulty you get into or, or is, is brought your way. So I tried to have a few interesting conversations with some of the prominent black theologians there who were um, yeah, speaking about this issue. And it was just interesting to have those engagements. But, you know, I don't uh, I don't you, know, you shouldn't really envy theologians trying to make their way at these conferences. Yes. Well, this uh, I suppose, you know, my experience to, to, to a lesser extent dealing with progressive uh, theology on the on the internet and uh, and you your experience at the conference Aaron I mean that raises the question I guess we wanted to, to bat around a little bit uh, for today's episode of Pod of the Gaps and that's the that's the provocative title of heresy mm. uh, right it is a provocative word um, but it occurred to me I mean as I was reflecting on what happened to me on Twitter before you know I heard what happened to you at the conference your trauma on Twitter with my trauma I've been traumatized yeah yeah, deeply, deeply, deeply traumatized. Yeah. Um, I think I'll ask Elon Musk to, for a handout because I'll feel much better. <laughs> um, and it occurred to me that it comes down to the Hubble Hall heresy thing that it's almost like we've got two issues going on um, in, in theology and the church and you know, the Christian subculture right now. One is a tendency which exists, and we need to be honest about it, to throw the heresy word around too rapidly. So you don't agree with somebody, perhaps if you are a you know, very strict Presbyterian, and you, you know you're very anti-charismatic, and you look at what's going on in charismatic churches or Pentecostals, you go, oh, "It's heresy! It's heresy! What they're doing? Um, it isn't. It's just that their ecclesiology is in their practice, you know, in terms of you know, spiritual gifts, whatever, slightly different deals. So you can use the word heresy wholly inappropriately, and you can use it to beat up on brothers and sisters in Christ who just don't look like you. On the other hand, we have a lot of nonsense." going on in the church you've described the conference you've been at i've given an example on on twitter you know a lot of the stuff say around sexual ethics that's being you know sort of is infected and i use that word quite de deliberately i think some of the mainstream denominations and we're afraid to call it heresy we talk about people having different views or quoting broad churches or uh you know or even we use nice terms like you know progressive theology whatever rather than you know, using a language the Bible has provided of, of heresy or false teaching. And it seems like we've forgotten how to use the word heresy appropriately. We either don't use it where we should, or some Christians use it where they shouldn't. What are, You're a theologian, uh, trained in this. I'm just a jobbing apologist. Um, what do you think? Do you, do you see those two issues too? And, and how do we perhaps begin to figure out yeah. what is it yeah. right to talk about heresy? Yeah, I, th I, th I think we, we don't use the term very often now, and I think that's... A I think that's actually a problem. It's funny, really, to say, why aren't we using heresy more? Um, I, I guess it's, it's not really about the word itself, but it's about the concept of it as a um, an, alter an alternative to orthodoxy. Mm. I think, functionally speaking, lots of churches do have, they know what heresy is. And if someone ever did come up with a, a full-on, you know, let's see, 
because it, it, it's something that was overtly against uh, the kind of Christian creeds of the um, ecumenical councils um, of the patristic era, then you'd you'd find um, it'd, be, it'd be obvious. I don't believe in the Trinity. I don't believe Jesus is the Son of God. I don't believe the Holy Spirit is God, or something like this. Um, then, or, or you know, believe something about salvation yeah. being pluralistic salvation or something. It'd be easy to highlight that, and I think still most evangelical churches still officially have that. Well, just very quickly, sorry to cut yeah. in to interrupt you there. So there was a very well-known case in, in Canada a few years ago that you know, okay, it wasn't not an evangelical denomination, but the United Church, when I was in Canada, had a pastor there, a female minister, who was outrightly atheist, denied that God existed. Mm. And they found they, you know, they didn't really have the stomach for even getting for getting rid of her. I think finally they did. Finally, it became so ridiculous. But you had somebody who was an outrightly, I don't believe in God, atheist, and was allowed for some years to carry on by that denomination before finally, again, you know, yeah. I think even they realised they had to do something about it. So, I mean, I, I mean, that doesn't surprise me, to be honest, because that, that, I mean, that, that was quite a prominent thing with the, there were many, not many, but there was a movement within Anglicanism uh, from the 1970s uh, called the Death of God theology yes and um, which was sort of like we can take and sort of use bonhoeffer um dietrich bonhoeffer made some comments towards the end of his life it's kind of free thinking comments in his letters to um um Ebhard betka and he was you know while he was in prison letters and papers from prison and some of those are quite radical proposals that you know might have been fleshed out differently had it been a different situation um, but some people take those and go oh um there's he's so critical of religion and the way that christianity has been sort of co-opted by culture um on the right, as much as on the left, but today might you could argue he'd be saying that we've been co-opted on the left. But at the time, certainly there are many churches who are in the pocket of the Nazis or in the pocket of American um, capitalism in, in in inappropriate ways, um, and so or American sort of the American dream that he yeah he had challenges that the church was just becoming too religious in this way. So could we have a religionless Christianity? And there was almost like how do we think of um, God, after people of the cult, Western cultures had this realization of the death of God, Nietzsche's sort of um, um, realization or eureka moment. Um, and what do we do in the light, in light of that? How do we engage with the world now uh, when they've had this sort of a world come of age? They've had this new way of understanding that it wasn't the case before um, the modern era. Um, and there are all these theologians that jumped on it, which are like, yeah, great. Bonhoeffer thinks that you cannot believe in God, the death of God. Uh, which is not what he's saying at all, but like you can just believe that God isn't actually existing and you can just be still there for the world. And there's still kind of elements of religion which are kind of embedded and beautiful and wonderful, but there need not be a transcendent God. Maybe there's a pantheism or maybe there's nothing at all. There's no transcendence, but we still, religion is a good thing for society. Um, and so it, it kind of works. There are many Christians for whom that actually would work if God wasn't really there after all. Um, their doctrine would actually work because it's so socially oriented. It's just about making the best of what we've got here it's the eschatology is very much now um now and now <laughs> so we're, we're, there's no kind of future hope it's kind of all about making the world a better place being but nicer to each other you know alleviating suffering where you can this kind of thing all good things to do but um it can it can become a social project and that's the classic liberalism kind of <clears throat> you know, social gospel yeah. um and so i think um, it's not surprised the Canadian um, example used because that was quite common. It's not as common today. I don't think you can get away with it as much in the, in the Church of England today, but there was a time where it was tolerated more. But what we do have today, I think, is um, subtle heresy. I think I think kind of or, or trajectories towards heresy that people don't realise are coming. Uh, and there, there are things that are kind of undermine the ability to say, to say anything orthodox um, because experience leads the way. So 
it's because of evangelical history where we focused on experience and like early Methodism would be a big example of this, you know, John Wesley, George Whitfield and others. Um, it's the strangely warmed heart. It's the fact that God has come and done something and changed my life. And those, those are wonderful things. And, and evangelicals should hold on to them and, and proclaim the importance of experience. We want to experience God. We don't just want to think conceptually, just mere doctrine, you know, merely in terms of propositional doctrines. We want to experience the reality of those doctrines in our life. But, you know, generations later, that becomes experience is the most important thing. And then you could have an experience and say, I think I had an experience of God that wasn't Jesus. So I had an experience of God um, that was actually saying that my sexuality is seemingly not in line with scripture, but that doesn't matter. And God said it was okay. Or I had a vision and a prophetic dream that this was the case. And maybe, maybe it's a bit heterodox. Maybe it's, I'm no longer a Trinitarian, but now there's sort of experience that kind of leads the way. The biggest one would be around other religions. And it'd be something like, you know, I, I just feel in myself, in my heart, that it, Jesus wouldn't want me to say that a Muslim can't uh, get to heaven by observing Islam in every way and rejecting Christ. Somehow, even Jesus has a way for them to um, to be saved in what they're doing. And I just think it ends up with different religions. I speak with progressive Christians all the time, mm. where I end up thinking, actually, we are talking about different religions here. And I don't think it's as appropriate to talk about this as an ecumenical yeah. conversation. But this is really almost like you need to be converted. And I don't like to use that language. I don't want to be overly narrow or dismissive of other people who call themselves Christians. But you do get to that bottom line where they've tolerated something that isn't yeah. Orthodox Christianity. But it's interesting. I mean, a question I often I often get, actually, when I'm doing, you know, my work at Solas, I do two things. I do a lot of speaking to non-Christian audiences. And it's interesting mm. the, the questions you get there. I also do a lot of teaching and training you know, in churches for folks, you know, sharing their faith and so forth. Mm. And one of the questions I often get, Aaron, is interesting. Often, often someone will, look, will invariably ask a question around, well, you know, how do I share my faith with my friend who, you know, outwardly says they're a Christian, mm. but there's just stuff going on that, that, that makes me worry they're not. Now, sometimes that's linked to a denomination, the Catholic question, for example. Sometimes it's just, you know, nominal Christianity in general. Mm. And I'll often say to people, you know, Rather than, you know, you be the, the the judge of whether somebody is or isn't in the kingdom, that's not our job. But what you can do, and I think it's a very telling diagnosis, is to say to your friend, well, tell me tell me about Jesus. What does Jesus mean to you? What's Jesus done in your life? What are some of the things he's addressing? Focus the question there and see what kind of answers you get. Um, because that can be quite interesting and diagnostic. If, if everything they say is, well, I love going to church and it's great and I've got great friends and that's all they ever talk about. And every time you try and bring it back to Jesus, it goes in that direction or about, you know, I love helping refugees in my town or whatever. Mm. Then I think you can begin to draw some conclusions that there's an issue. If they're happy to talk about Jesus, mm. um, if Jesus is the main thing they want to talk about, then at least you've got focus in the right place. I think and that's the first thing. Can I just? I, I don't know if you had another thing. But let me just I jump have another on that thing. But you can. Oh, jump yeah, yeah. Let that. me jump in on before the number two comes out. Um, it was just that Thanks I think even even evangelical churches are at fault for that as well. Really. So I don't. I don't, yes. I don't want to sound like I'm blaming the liberals. I actually think evangelical churches are often sold a gospel, or the way we present the gospel is you know just self help, and so it's like yes. this will make your life better. We can offer you a great community here. Which, which is good. Of course, the church is wonderful. We should be preaching the glory of the church. That's absolutely, Jesus didn't come just to save individuals, but to form them, adopt them, elect them into a, a wonderful community that's going to represent him and be his hands and feet on earth and, and live as a witness to him. Mm. Absolutely. But we're not doing it so that you can just have um, a community or a replacement family. That's not the only reason. It is a huge benefit, a great benefit. People have lots, I've talked to so many people in horrible 
difficult home situations for whom like the church is is just their family and i love to hear that it's a wonderful testament to the value of church but it's not just that it has to be that jesus and you would be willing to take a stand for jesus and to suffer for him actually yeah. as well, well otherwise i think i think i think i think i totally agree with you know i think otherwise unless it's plugged into that that jesus-centered foundation of course ultimately it's going to fail because communities do and that's when you know division happens or you know the church completely loses its focus and and and, and drifts away and yeah. you know something you said earlier intrigued me you mentioned the you know this the, the the bonhoeffer i think was you know back then you know critiquing the church of his day for being a bit too you know pally pally with the with the with the forces of you know mm. right-wing politics mm. at that point mm. and today it's left-wing and i read i mean I've, i was reading somebody recently who made exactly the same point saying the church repeatedly makes the mistake repeatedly of plugging itself into the politics of the day, then we forget the pendulum swings mm. and the church is left high and dry. So right now, you know, progressive politics is the biggest, loudest voice. And so, you know, you have a huge number of church leaders saying, oh, the right thing to do then is to get as woke as possible and plug ourselves into yeah. that and all yeah. of those kind of things. Mm. But it will not last forever. In fact, arguably the pushback is 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 beginning. I mean, we mentioned you know, Elon Musk. I mean, it was interesting. I think that's that that's one of a number of examples in technology where that where the, where business is beginning to push back against yeah against the work agenda. And my fear is the damage is done to the gospel mm. when suddenly again the politics changes and the church yeah. has been left hitched, or well, large chunks of it yeah. hitched to the wrong car. But you mentioned the focus of the church. The same leader, <laughs> people are gonna Google and find out who this is. It's, it's, the it's same, chalk, chalk and cheese with the gospel. The same leader I had this little Twitter spat with, I was reading his so his Twitter feed the other day, one of his latest tweets, he was talking very excitedly about a new church they're launching in a part of London. And uh, literally the, the, the graphic I, I, uh, on the on the tweet says, you know, are you interested in joining us to build a progressive, inclusive, activist church in, you know, mentions part of London, that works transform our local community? And I read it and I went, there's no get me wrong there's nothing wrong with those things i think it's important we're not heard to be saying the church shouldn't be making a difference in community if it isn't something has gone wrong but the fact that jesus isn't mentioned the fact that you could change that to are you interested in building a a progressive inclusive activist mosque or an activist gudwara or an actual activist humanist society if literally the church has become a cipher for social club and has become disconnected from from truth there's a massive, massive problem. And one of the things I, I tweeted at this chat when we were having our little Twitter spat was one of my theological heroes. I think we may have mentioned him on Part of the Gaps for not often, but I think once or twice. Leslie Newbegin, really interesting, you know, character, uh, missionary and pastor and philosopher, just incredible polymath yeah. really in the 20th uh, kind of century. He started out in quite liberal, in quite liberal, you know, stream of Anglicanism. And really for him, everything was about social action. And it was only when he went off, I think either in his late teens or early 20s, uh, be part of a, a, a team that had gone to help some, uh, I think some former, some former mining villages in Wales that were suffering all kinds of depredation. But he suddenly had, as he writes in his autobiography, you know, had this huge wake up call that actually, you know, dealing with people's needs required more than just a cup of tea and a few games of table tennis, but yeah. actually needed to connect people to the transforming power of Jesus. Yes, you needed to deal with their social concerns. And he then went, goes on to become a missionary and church planter in India. And he describes how coupling those two things together, that when people heard the gospel preached and realized the people preaching the gospel were the same people who, you know, fed their poor and, you know, healed their sick during the week. The two things become incredibly important. Yeah. 
but yeah. he figured out and you disconnect the gospel and you disconnect the source the power the whole thing fails yeah i've got a phd student working on leslie newbegin actually for this thesis at the moment actually it's fascinating we've had great conversations about thinking about newbegin's re reaction yeah coming back from the mission field and kind of going what's happened here guys like look at look at how look at look at the state the western culture is in um, and uh, the kind of things that we've sort of let go and the way the church has tried to syncretize with the culture and, and the way it's gone wrong. And you mentioned earlier the whole problem of, um, you know, allying yourself with a certain um, idea of a time. There's a, a, a phrase I remember coming across when I first was introduced to Rudolf Bultmann, a famous uh, New Testament theologian who was demythologizing the Bible. He was all the rage, you know, in 1930s uh, Germany and beyond it kind of still has a kind of significant following really but kind of was the arch liberal really of the mid 20th century for many because he sort of just took away the things you know inheriting the stuff from the 19th century that you can just get rid of the stuff that doesn't really fit in the world of technology in the world of electric light as he famously said now we've got electric lights goodness me we can't believe in these walking on water nonsense anymore this is just primitive fairy tales we can get beyond but i still want to talk about the gospel and proclamation and how important that is so he could win people over because he still had this kind of passion for jesus even though it didn't seem to have any historical content to it and that became a very very fashionable thing uh, to say a kind of existentialism of the time and people would buy it because oh I, I can still seem quite affable to the kind of enlightenment culture of um reason i don't need to seem like i'm crazy and believe in miracles and uh, transcendent realities i can you know I, I can have this jesus and have cultural affirmation and not seem crazy um and there's the phrase that i was introduced to is uh, which i'm sure you've heard many times he's married to the spirit of the age will find themselves a widow in the next Yes. Um, so I think it's quite profound. So when you marry the zeitgeist, you say, right, I'm going to jump on this train. I'm going to jump on the Nazi train. They, they're really going somewhere. The Third Reich, yeah, there's some dodgy ideas. But look, there's loads of good stuff. I think you can sort of map a Christian way of understanding this. Anyway, there's so much progress. There's so much great stuff going on. And look, look how quickly it unravels. And the same has happened. It's happened on the right and it happens on the left. And so it's, you've got to be anchored and moored and be willing to be unpopular on either side of the debate, just as Jesus was, happy to annoy people on the left and on the right. Mm. Um, and I, just I think we're so easily enraptured by the, the praise of humanity around. You know, we want to be popular. We want to have affability. And I think it's OK. Just, you don't want to be deliberately obnoxious to people and, and seek out trouble. But I mm. do think you need we, more Christians need to be willing to stand on the rock and stand and be faithful yes, um, yes. When, when it's difficult. And when, when people are going to say, do you really believe that? Goodness me, you still believe that? Oh, my goodness. We, we're way past that. I mean, yeah. Don't you realise there's all these prominent Christians who believe this now? You don't need to go on with that nonsense anymore. And the irony is, I mean, the thing that I find deeply ironic in this is actually when you hold those two things together, when you take, when you plant your feet on biblical truth and on Christ and you live that out in society. Actually, I also think when you have, when you face that, when you have the courage to do that, actually it turns out that maybe more people than you realise might, although they may disagree with you on the stance you've taken, still respect you for what you've done. The two, exa the two examples to me that hold that up will be firstly Jesus. Jesus doesn't compromise morally, mm. um, not in the slightest. He could have gone along with the, with the norms of society to try and win a crowd. He doesn't, but the crowds still come. Mm. And those who actually come up against the morality, those who are the moral outcasts of society, are drawn deeply to him. So mm. that shows me you can, you can hold clear to biblical ethics and still be deeply attractive to people because jesus engaged the people actually he obviously drove away with the religious elites he didn't drive away the tax collectors and the prostitutes mm. and, the, and, the, and the and the sinners mm. and then secondly of course is the early church 
the early church in those first three or 300 years or so where it's been persecuted mercilessly by the Romans, where the, church, the Christians are being mocked for their stand on sexual ethics. And this is one of the things I find amazing that people think today they're so progressive, but actually in the ancient world, you know, the sexual ethics was even more lax yeah. Yeah. than today. And the huge pressure was on Christians to go along with that. Um, you know, I love that moment in Matthew 19 where Jesus talks about divorce yeah. and, you know, the only grounds for divorce are sexual morality. And by the way, marriage is between a man and a woman. And so the disciples' reaction to that is, oh, my word, that's a hard teaching um, because the culture <laughs> is the opposite. But because the Christians, as well as the sexual ethics they, they proclaimed, held fast to the gospel and also then lived it out, they fed the poor. They dealt with the victims of plague. You know, they got, you know, you, there's that wonderful example of the Roman emperor Julian the Apostate criticizing the, mm-hmm. you know, the secular, they're criticizing the pagan priests mm-hmm. for being out, you know, outclassed in terms of care for the poor by the hated Galileans, yeah. as he puts it. So ironically, there's a massive place for social action yeah. when you couple it with the gospel. When you disconnect it, I think it, it, it becomes, it fails to be justice, and it does huge tra- huge damage. It's interesting you make you say about the um, you know, Greco-Roman uh, culture was more progressive. You could even go further back, couldn't you? Sodom and Gomorrah was pretty progressive in terms of um, over overcoming the boundaries that were placed on them and 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 into exploring sexually in all sorts of other ways. So it's interesting to think really what's happening in our day where we're kind of just trying to push every boundary sexually and gender-wise and all the rest of it is really going back to something that Christendom. Yes. Um, was actually enforced itself on. There's no. I, I've been reading Leviticus recently, and just thinking, goodness, so many of the things that we just naturally think are wrong, like incest or bestiality or, or homosexuality, if we're talking about homosexual practice and, and, and Christian thought. Um, there was a time when you had to say that, and, and it's Christendom that's sort of given us this sort of sense of right. Yeah. We kind of know, right, that marriage is a good idea, monogamy is a good idea, and like you shouldn't incest is really bad. And but in Leviticus, they're having to say, look, don't do what the tribes around you are doing. You're going to be a holy nation unto me, because I am the Lord and I'm giving you these commands. And you kind of read through the and you're reading through going, isn't this obvious? Well, it wasn't obvious uh, to people. There, there were many around saying, no, come and do this, this is fine, that this won't right. be a problem. And you, and so the, the 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 depths to which this kind of go, the detail you get there in terms of what it meant for Israel to be a holy nation. Which is taken up by Peter in Peter's letter, of course. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think so, you're right, and I yeah. think, and actually, without going down this, this this whole other tangent, we could go down. We've actually done a, a show on this topic. You know, this reminded me, um, Aaron, this idea actually that we forget, our society forgets, just how deeply ingrained the Christian, even mm. the Christian sexual ethic, mm. is. Um, at the time of recording, um, there's a big uh, sort of a scandal was broken out in the British newspapers because one of our MPs, one of our parliamentarians, was caught watching pornography on his smartphone in the House of Commons. And you've seen this this story. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been all over the newspapers the last few days. And in fact, the, you know, several of the leading newspapers this morning, in fact, the, the Daily Telegraph, kind of right-leading small-c conservative newspaper this morning, had a big headline story on why do men watch pornography in public mm-hmm. and how terrible it all was. And we've done a show on the, on the dangers and the damage of pornography. But what, what I found intriguing was our society, again, is, is, has this absolutely split running down the middle of it because it's got disconnected from, from biblical truth. On the one hand, there's this idea that anything goes. Pornography's fine. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it, our society would say. The more of it, the better. Yeah. On the other hand, oh, what people are watching it in public and that's yeah. terrible and that's, that's oppressive and that's wrong. And some poor woman's caught sight of that and, and it's and it's deeply misogynistic. And I remember I read those. I mean, following the story, thinking, 
our society just doesn't know what to do yeah. um, here. Um, and I think, yeah, profoundly Christian, but profoundly forgotten its roots, which is maybe why heresy is all the more serious, because it's Christian leaders yeah. who need to be taking the stand and then reconnecting things and going, yeah, there's a reason why mm. actually pornography, most people, when they mm. stop and think about it, especially women, find it deeply disturbing. There's a good yeah. reason for that. Yeah. Let's show you why that is. And that's not oppressive reason actually it's a deeply liberating reason because you know god thinks sex is wonderful he created it and he gave a fantastic context for it but outside of that context all kinds of bad things yeah happen christian leaders the ones who are supposed to be holding that that line Mm. give in uh, i think the damage is 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 terrible again by the way it's just kind of ludicrous how someone with a let's say liberal or progressive view who, who bangs on about the social gospel is so important about the social implications, not just the ex- like kind of personal implications of you being saved from your sin before holy God. It's it let's change the world in the, in the here and now, but they don't really care about changing the world in the here and now on things like that. Um, as so much because there's so many inconsistencies when you could point to like problems where a certain kind of belief or, or belief in something socially or culturally or ethically leads to a certain end, which is not good for people. You could, could name lots of examples that they're just a picking and choosing of, of what we decide is an important thing on that. But it, it links into um, something I was, I was thinking about in relation to um, the character and heresy. So when you think about a false teaching, so probably a better way of talking about it is like false teaching or versus sound teaching, kind of the biblical language. Um, and w- when someone's got a view that is unorthodox or heterodox, whatever you want to call it, or heretical, are we are we just saying that they've made a, co- a cognitive error in their mind and they've said, oh, I've been persuaded by a bad argument? What's so bad about that? You know, you could say, look, someone's a universalist. They believe that everyone everyone's saved. They, they're just trying to be nice. They just wish that God was nicer or something. They've just been persuaded by someone, by some propositions in an argument that's not so bad, is it? Why do we have to be so mean and call someone a heretic or excommunicate them as the church would have done in, in previous areas, which we can still do now, but just rarely ever happens, let alone church discipline. Um, so it's just weird to think that, why, yeah, why is heresy a bad thing? Why is false teaching a bad thing? But I think the way I, th- I see it in the New Testament is that you, you often see it connected to character. You see it connected to what kind of a person is, is believing this. I, I don't want to stress this too much because i don't want to sort of assume that if you do believe something um slightly tangential slightly unorthodox you're naturally a bad person that's not really the point but there's something about a, a, a lack of soundness and and whether someone as you say andy a leader is this person uh, why does this person believe this is it because they want the affability of the world is it because they're wanting um to harm people is it what is it because they're wanting to uh, manipulate someone or is it because they're wanting actually to think they're better than god because they, they, they're more gracious than god even because they think they're being more gracious by let's say opening the floodgates to anyone regardless of what they actually think or believe or how they act um and so i think it's interesting the, the, the language in the new testament in the letters when paul calls out heresy or false teaching he names people he actually names a heretic like alexander the coppersmith or or someone who's opposed the gospel in some way or himenaeus philetus you know um and I think it's it's intriguing that that must point to the fact that he doesn't go out of his way to say here this pro- this idea is the problem. He says this person is the problem because they've been causing problems. This is what they believe, and this is how the f- the bad fruit that that works out in their life. So, like I said, you don't want to overstress that because I, I think you could easily 
uh, judge people wrongly. You could easily kind of then think of your friend on Twitter or something as just an inherently bad person. But I do think there's something connected to trustworthiness of character. And the shepherds of flocks, the language of the New Testament, it's a shepherd of a flock. What kind of a shepherd are you going to be? Are you going to allow the wolves in because you actually think um, maybe they're not so bad after all? Maybe we should reintroduce wolves as, as we are doing nowadays um, for ecosystem reasons. But are we going to just say that that's okay now? And then what do you think is going to happen to the sheep? So if you're going to care about the sheep, if you're going to be trustworthy with my flock, you need to listen to the voice mm-hmm. of Christ and not listen to the voice of of strangers because that's what the sheep my sheep will do they'll listen to my voice so you need to listen to my voice as my leaders mm. that's a good sort of point to sort of begin to come in for a landing it reminds me of a, an, another i think another another book i mentioned while we were chatting before we began recording um when i was doing, doing my undergraduate kind of work in theology back in the early 2000s came across a phenomenal book looking at some of the historic heresies around the, the, the deity of Christ. And if you know anything of church history, you know, there was some, as uh, as theologians wrestled through, you know, the doctrine of the Trinity, the New Testament was very clear in a sense, you know, on, on who Jesus was, but then theologians got into their head, they needed to figure out how he was possible. And, you know, yeah. all kinds of classic heresies arose. There's an amazing book called The Cruelty of Heresy, written by mm. a guy with an amazing name, actually, C. Fitzsimmons Allison, called mm. The Cruelty of Heresy. And the big idea in that book I think connects to what you've just said there. He doesn't just sort of, that book gives you a wonder, it really fascinating survey of those heresies and what went wrong and biblically what, you know, why those various positions, you know, were, were rejected by the church. But he also looks at the pastoral implications. You know, for example, if you don't believe that Jesus was, was fully human, if he was only sort of floating around, you know, pretending to be a human being, then he didn't have a human nature. And when, you know, that means human nature was not taken into, into the Godhead and there was human nature wasn't saved in the atonement. Um, it was all pretend. There wasn't really a death and resurrection. Mm. Similarly, if Jesus wasn't really God, then again, there's been no reconciliation between us and us, us, us and God because you just can't stand in that gap as the God man. And actually, you know, what sounds like an interesting theological idea, well, I wonder if he wasn't really God, mm. actually ends up being horrifically cruel because you actually deny salvation and you destroy salvation in the process. Mm. And I think the same thing is going on what you described, that some of these positions, although... You know, my friend on Twitter, as you as you put uh, as you put it, you know, I genuinely don't believe he sat down there and gone, okay, how can I just be as you know corrupting as possible? Mm-hmm. Well, the outworking of that is absolutely tragic mm-hmm. because actually that drip 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 effect yeah. um, over time, you are robbing people of you know what it means to be connected to biblical holiness around issues of sexuality. Yeah. You're robbing them of the power of the gospel, um, and you know you mentioned the universalism piece that's creeping in you know, in around some of the sort of progressive thoughts, you know, I having met so many Muslims, former Muslims who are now Christians, you know, that incredible encounter and, and, and discovery they've had of finding what it means to find hope and salvation in Christ. I think of my friend, Nabil Qureshi, in his mm. book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, the joy he found mm. when he finally found, was found by Christ and reconciled mm. with, with God, what he'd been searching for and unable to find in Islam, to have that denied to people like Nabil, which is what progressive theology would do. No, no, don't worry about that. Just carry on as you are. Mm. Cruelty is the best word. Heresy is is, is cruel. Absolutely. That's a really good point. I mean, I'd love to say we could end it there, but I'm I'm always interrupting your brilliant smoothness. That's a really important point. I I just want to make a couple of other points. I'll allow you to 
Well, they do that, can... and then you can uh, you can take us out as well. Oh, okay. okay. I'll, I'll take us out. I'll take us out. I'll try and land this thing. Okay. Well, let's go. Yeah. You're Con Air now or something. Yeah. Right. Um, so the first thing is, uh, it really needs to be mentioned in any discussion of heresy that in the, the history of the church, actually heresy has contributed to the articulation of orthodoxy. So it's actually because we had heretics um, that the church, the theologians had to batten down the hatches and go, right, we basically know who Jesus is and we can understand scripture, but we've never had to fully define it. So the creeds came out of this, um, this need to say, right, why don't we believe in Arianism? Why don't we believe um, that Jesus was not created, that there was a time when Jesus wasn't there and the father brought him into being by creating him? And yes, he's he may even still be divine in some way, um, but he's or, or but he's still created. He's a he's the creation. And why was that really important? And a load of people were following Arius. Um, and there was exactly so there's a pastoral implications of that for all those reasons you mentioned. Um, and so they had to say, right, why is this wrong? There's people who are being led on this merry dance away. We need to articulate this very, very clearly. And so actually they borrowed philosophical, philosophical concepts at the time, and including from Greek philosophy, and kind of annexed them uh, for, for kind of Christian purposes. And then they found an articulation of, of scriptural teaching, um, which helpfully um, worked against the heretics. And it happened because they had to work against people. So actually there's a weird way in which God uses heretics, I think, providentially, to help articulate theologically uh, what, what Christians believe. And it can be very a real blessing to people. Um, the second thing is um, we like to, you know, the reason why we don't use the word heresy today, because it just seems very uninclusive, doesn't it, to kind of excommunicate or tell people they're a heretic. But actually, in an ironic way, the kind of progressive wokeism we see today is a new dogmatic orthodoxy. Um, so do, the, the kind of, you know, I, we often say we wish liberals were liberal and we wish actually we could have a reasoned conversation, but you actually can't because if you say something that's not in line with, let's say, critical race theory or let's say heteronormativity is bad or something like this, you're seen as bad. You're seen as a bad person, an unvirtuous person, because you must not be very nice and, light and, and inclusive of these people. So that's not, that's not liberalism, which is sort of reasonable argument and, and moving away from dogma. Um, it's dogma. It's saying there just is something that's true. I don't need to prove that it's true. We just know it's self-evidently true. Now, it's more consistent to say that if you believe in divine revelation as, as the bringer of that truth than if you just say, we've moved beyond God and dogma, and yet we've got all these things that are just self-evidently true Like we don't even need to prove with evidence or need to prove with reason or even persuade you. We just know that they're true and we're going to get rid of you. Um, from the cancel you or whatever it is, if not. So this, so heresy and orthodoxy are interesting concepts that still absolutely relate to a lot of the culture wars we see going on um, today. I have no idea how to make that into a nice gospel uh, wrapped uh, thing, but other than to say, to reiterate what you were saying earlier, Andy, that um, mm. Christians need to do better at responding. And, and that means not just um, ducking out of the fight, not just ducking out of the discussion saying, well, there's I don't want to be a doctrinal nitpick, don't want to tell people that they're wrong. Exactly as you say, we need to think about the health of the church, the health of the people and, and those around us. We don't want to have an unhealthy church. We want sound doctrine. We want to feed people good food. We don't want to feed them junk food. That's not going to be good for them. It's not going to nourish their souls. It's not going to help them um, stand on the rock when they need to. That's not going to tempt them to jump off the rock and build a house on the sand. So, so, so important that we focus on this. And actually, that's why, yes, yes, we can be heresy hunters and be overly nitpicky at times, but we really do need to think of sound doctrine and to you know, speak against ideas which are going to be un unhelpful and harmful and unfaithful. So um, if that is some kind of a landing, um, this has been uh, part of the gaps. We hope you found it helpful as always. Support, like, share and subscribe to all those podcasty type things. And um, I've been Aaron Edwards and this has been Andy Bannister and we've been your heretics for the day. Goodbye. See you next time.
Thank you.